We're in Mark chapter 10, picking up where we left off in verse 28. When it comes to discouragement, somehow, you've heard the cliche, misery loves company. And it really does. Remember what I said a couple of weeks ago about spending time with the disciples if you want to be encouraged concerning your own walk with the Lord. For a group of men who were literally, remember, I mean, this seems so basic, but sometimes we forget, they were handpicked by God himself. And they were being drenched in the very presence of God. And they had God and they experienced God up close and personal. And for a group of men who were handpicked and they experienced God firsthand, being drenched in His very presence, boy, they sure come up with some doozies. If you were standing around with your peeps, and God was within a few feet away, I mean physically, God was there and you knew He was there, and He was there listening, would you be discussing which one of you was the greatest in the kingdom of God? Don't answer that out loud. At another time, despite Jesus emphasizing and even illustrating hands-on to the disciples about his care and his concern and his compassion and his affection for children, what do we find? We find the disciples getting all hot and bothered when children run up to Jesus for some tender, loving care. The disciples were a piece of work. As we all are. Earlier we talked about Jesus mentioning that those entering the kingdom of heaven must do so with a childlike faith. And we talked about what that might mean in previous messages. And in this morning's spirit-inspired vignette, Mark records now Peter's follow-up to Jesus' comments, which are coming on and are tied to his comments about the kingdom and that childlike faith. Summarizing the point that Jesus had made was that nobody gets into heaven by their own innate intellectual powers. Nobody gets into heaven by their good intentions or their hard work or their charity or their kindness or anything else. And to clear up a misunderstanding of the day which held that fame and fortune were actually indicator number one of God's blessing in one's life, Jesus corrects the thinking saying, the more one has of all that this world has to offer, the more of a distraction and hindrance they tend to be. Which is why the faith of people with wealth and fame and power and status are not routinely advantaged by their privilege, but in fact are disadvantaged by it far, far, far more often than not. There's just something about having an abundance of things and having, having all of the creature comforts and having luxuries that tend to lead one to thinking that they belong somehow to some special or some favored class of humanity. And, and because of that, they deserve what privilege they have, in which case it's no longer a privilege, but in fact a right. When we of the golfing world watched the press conference of Tiger Woods, after his serial moral failings were found out by his wife, and it's rumored that she took a nine iron and did a chip shot on his right cheek, 
He stated the following, I knew my actions were wrong, but I convinced myself that normal rules didn't apply to me. I felt that I had worked hard my entire life and deserved to enjoy all the temptations around me. I felt I was entitled. Apparently, uh, <laughs> I can assure you, I did not watch this. Apparently, last Sunday, if I have my timing right, it doesn't matter, was the 2016 MTV Video Awards, where the always illustrious and humble Kanye West compared himself to Steve Jobs and Walt Disney and Henry Ford and Howard Hughes. Being rich has its own challenges. Hence Jesus' comment about it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. But let's remember, again, that the Bible doesn't say that wealth and abundance are immoral. It's not money that is the root of all evil. Although that's the way it is popularly and generally quoted. But rather, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 saying, It is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. And in the Bible also notes the reality of fallen man. Jeremiah writes that the heart is more deceitful than above all else and is desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? And so the bottom line as it is and was with the rich young ruler is that until someone recognizes their moral and their spiritual bankruptcy and their desperate need for a Savior, hope of eternity is scarce. The Apostle Paul puts it a bit more eloquently later on to the Ephesian church in chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And adding some words here just for clarity, neither grace nor faith is of yourselves. Both, in fact, are the gift of God. Salvation is not a result of anything anyone can do so that no one may boast. In case there's any doubt about this, Paul again in his letter to Titus writes that it's not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to his mercies he saved us. Washing us by the power of the Holy Spirit, he gave us new birth and a fresh beginning. And so the disciples are shocked at Jesus' words that there's nothing a person can do to earn eternal life. And so the disciples collectively ask, well, if there's nothing we can do, then, then, then who can be saved? And in Mark 10:27, looking at them, Jesus said, with people it's impossible. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. Now, candidly, come on. If we gave that as an answer to someone asking the same question, wouldn't that sound like a pretty empty cliche? But Peter's the bright one in the bunch. Well, okay, maybe not. But he's at least the one never shy to give a reply. And Peter blurts out in verse 28, Behold, Jesus, we've left everything and followed you. Wait, what? That is to say, but Lord, look how much we've given up for you. After all Jesus just said. And I, 
this is just my mind, I think Jesus must be looking at him incredulously, maybe even stuttering a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but unless your faith is like that of a child, no, never mind. <laughs> That's just me. No, Jesus graciously replies in verse 29 to 30, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much. Now in the present age, houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with friends and in the age to come eternal life. And I see Peter thinking, boom, got it, yeah, love it. Now that's the kind of God that we've been hoping for. But I didn't quite get that last part. It seemed like you kind of mumbled something. And Jesus said, oh, you mean the part about persecution? Yep, yeah, persecution is also a part of the blessing. Free doesn't mean cheap. Hmm. All right, all right, time out. We have two disparate thoughts in the same sentence. The first, the promise of blessing concerning restoration and renewal, and yet, literally in the same breath, the promise of the blessing of persecution. How do we take two such disparate ideas and bring them together and marry them? Well, we don't want to do what the prosperity preachers do, and ignore the uncomfortable stuff. First, we need to take the promise of the blessing of restoration and loss and ask ourselves, is that literal or is it metaphorical? Is it figurative? Prosperity preachers love to pitch that kind of warped exegesis. After all, faith that is based on economic advantage and personal self-interest absolutely falls right in line with and caters to our idea of American consumerism. Which is why Pastor Osteen and Victoria attribute acquisition of their dream home written out and explained in your best life now they attribute it to their unwavering, faith-filled declarations of their unbalanced understanding of the promise of material blessings. But as I note in chapter 16 of The Proper Pursuit of Prosperity, in fairness, I must mention that the prosperity peddlers do at times talk of giving and benevolence. But even in this, they cannot seem to be able to avoid turning it to their advantage. That is, in order to get, you have to give. And far more often than not, such giving is directed to the prosperity peddler's own ministry. If you just want to keep in your pocket what I will call a quick test of truth, ask yourselves, whenever you hear something that just maybe doesn't strike you right, or you're wondering, oh, really, is that true? I don't know. Ask yourself, how would this particular teaching or this particular promise, whatever it happens to be, how would it play out in a different culture? How would it play out in a third world country? Which is why in the proper pursuit of prosperity, I open in chapter 1 with a trip to Haiti. 
I describe what it's like being there. I describe what it must be like living there. And again, I wrote, if the popular notion of prosperity, health, and wealth is true, it must be true without respect to geographical location, historical epoch, economy, type of government, or a country's GDP. Meaning, if it isn't true in Haiti or anywhere else, then it isn't true. So Jesus' assurance that the disciples will receive 100 times as many farms and homes and parents and children as they give up is curious. Just a casual glance at a literal rendering of the promise begs the question. And I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek here, obviously. What would anybody want if it was literal? What would anybody need? What would anyone do with a hundred farms or a hundred houses or a hundred mothers or a hundred fathers? And in the case of the smalls, nine hundred children. (laughs) Matthew isn't so specific writing of this same conversation. He simply says that those who sacrifice, listing out those things for the Lord, will receive a much more generic, many times as much. So applying ordinary literary parameters, the meaning is not literal, but it is hyperbole, meant to underscore the eternal principle that salvation is a gift dependent totally on God's doing. And nevertheless, Peter blurts out his knee-jerk question. Peter wants to know that his sacrifices for the Lord won't be for naught. And gracious Jesus, patient Jesus, complies. But please note, Jesus' assurances regarding rewards may in fact include brick and mortar. So I don't want to over-spiritualize something. Because his promises, as he states it there, even though exaggerated, may in fact include brick and mortar. We have known some, and by some I mean one, very rich Christian. But what Jesus is talking about goes beyond bricks and mortar, or even genetic bonds, or what we would call blood ties. But for sure, the blessings do have present fulfillment. This isn't just a case of, of dodging something by saying, oh, it all becomes true in heaven. You know, It's not just pie in the sky, in the great by and by. And being mindful that Scripture interprets Scripture, we have to take Jesus' answer to Peter in light of the whole counsel of God's Word, which means we have to consider Jesus' words in the day in which they were written, which means we have to be mindful of the plight of Christians of days gone by and in different eras and different epochs. For example, the book of Hebrews. The context for Hebrews is that whoever wrote it, we're not sure, is being written to Jewish Christians, and ironically, in the culture of the day, because they were Christians, they were outcasts in the Jewish community, and because they were Jews, they were outcasts in the Christian community, and they're in the grip of of kind of a worst-case scenario and wondering if, if this Jesus, if it's all worth it. The writer says, inspired by God, remember the former days when after 
being enlightened, which means after you came to the knowledge of Christ and you received him as your Lord and your Savior and Messiah. Remember that you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Again, misery does love company. <laughs> For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. And it, I got to... I cannot wrap my head, okay, around a lot of things to do with, with, with persecution. You showed sympathy to the prisoners and you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. I'm telling you, there's no way I am there. Okay? Oh, sure. You're taking our property. You're taking our home and you're putting us in an all-provided luxury result called a retention or detention center. Yeah, I don't think so. But they did so knowing that they had for themselves a better possession and a lasting one. Look how forward-thinking they were. Reminds me again in Hebrews where it talks about Jesus and it says, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Therefore do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming, oh, he, he is coming, and he will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we... The believers, the Christian Jews at the time, and this is, this is like an optimistic way of stating, look, buck up, don't give up this Jesus, and you're not going to because once saved, always saved, but you are of those who f- have faith to the persevering or preserving of the soul. We are not of those who are going to shrink back, are we? And what is the very next verse? Obviously, again, even the positioning is inspired by God. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. For by it, men of old gained approval. That is, they were made to be taken note of. Now, I admit, and we need to admit, that there are many mysteries of the Christian faith. And there are many mysteries of Jesus' promises as well as many paradoxes. Right? It's better to give than to receive. Huh? <laughs> In order to win, you have to lose. What? To gain everything, you must give up everything. Oh, come on, that doesn't make any sense. And then Mark adds in verse 31, And many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And those who have walked with Jesus for a few years, we understand, or at least we should, how it all works, and actually it does make perfect sense, even while being paradoxical. And that does not imply, though, that it is always, or even that it's ever easy. 
When I walked away from my long-held aspirations of being a physician, it was not easy, and yet truly, and I'm not just saying this because I'm up here, but it truly was joyful because I knew it was of God and I knew it was the right thing to do and is what he wanted. And what after the fact happened for all these years, well, the spiritual benefits that the Lord has blessed Barbara and I and our family with and the tangible material blessings he has blessed us with in giving that up for him. And that is exactly what Jesus was talking about and what he meant and what he said to the disciples. Now, we're used to Mark's way of writing, and all of a sudden it's just like that. This whole pericope just stops dead, and boom, a brand new vignette. So Jesus heads out now, and of course the disciples are in tow. So they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed. Now, to this point in this gospel, eight times already we read of places where the disciples were amazed, and the disciples were amazed, and the disciples were amazed, and he said and the disciples were amazed, and Jesus did this, and the disciples were amazed. And it's not just like, wow, it's more like a, wow, huh? Eight times to this point. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside, and he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and they will spit on him, and they will scourge him and kill him, and three days later, he will rise again. Let me remind us that this is now the fourth time that Mark tells us the passion has been broached. This is the fourth time that Jesus broaches the issue of where this is all heading and the finality of it all in a human sense. And each time he gives it, there's usually a little more detail given in each way, the fourth time. The first time was back in chapter 831. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then in chapter 9, verse 31, he was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and when he's been killed he will rise three days later. And then it's alluded to in chapter 9 in the whole ordeal surrounding the the transfiguration. And so now, again, now this being the fourth time, and the always astute disciples coming out of AP theology class surely get it the fourth time around. But gospel writer Luke records of this same incident in chapter 1834. The disciples understood None of these things. <laughs> Not just some of these things. The disciples understood none of these things. So be encouraged. Be strengthened. In the previous message two weeks ago, 
I said something along the lines of, if you get discouraged at how your spiritual learning curve seems like a flatline EKG, remember what I said? Just spend some time with the disciples. It is obvious that Jesus doesn't seem to peruse one's life resume when he selects his team to go out into the world and bring about the Great Commission. It should be obvious that the mission of the church to make disciples of all nations is not dependent on the cream of the crop, the gifted and the talented, or the spiritually astute, but in fact more often and routinely those who are ready and willing. So don't get caught up in the comparison trap. Well, I'm not. I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm not this, and, and I, I'm not that. I. I. Mm, eh. I'm sure I've told you that way back in one of my very first handful, handfuls, hands full of sermons. I, honest to goodness, was holding on to the pulpit because I thought I was going to pass out. Seriously, and my mouth was so dry. That I'm trying to work up spit, hence the expression scared spitless. And my knees were just like going, mm, 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 mm. And I remember, and it was horrible, by the way. Okay, it wasn't my perception. It was a horrid, it was a horrid sermon, a horrid delivery. I'm still trying to get out of my mind. I'm still in therapy for it once in a while. <laughs> that was the classic one. Okay, it's, yeah, it's worth repeating. She's already laughing. This is so not Barb. You have to understand that, okay? She will find the spark of light in the deepest, darkest cavern, okay? As opposed to me, I will find the dark spot in the midst of a bright, sunny day. And so I come back to my seat, and I sit down next to her, and I don't want to do anything but just stare straight ahead and just let whatever's going on go on. And I'm thinking... Barb will, I'll be able to read if it was really that bad by Barb's reaction. And I'm sitting there, grateful that it was done, but sorry that I'm still sitting there. And I get this. I love you. <laughs> Lord, take me home now. It was as bad as I thought. But that wasn't enough from Poopsie. (laughs) This church of a handful of people were paying me to do this. Okay? And she leans over again. You don't have to take the money. (laughs) (laughs) Ah! Yeah. (laughs) But don't you think that the creator of the universe who speaks solar systems into existence can make an inarticulate, insecure, excuse-making individual into his ambassador, and if he desires even into his mouthpiece, so to speak. Oh, I think so. I think Moses 
would have a few things to say about that. The Lord takes any who is ready and willing despite capability or inability because the Lord can take care of that end of things. And in just a second, we're going to look at the pictures ever so briefly of the people who went into the waters of baptism last Sunday. And you'll see why I'm putting them up. Maybe. Yep. This is the group. We had 18 people follow the Lord. There's Amanda, my number one fan. Little Grace and her father. Good old Isaac and Isaac. And there's Jesse. And remember Justin. And there's Keith and Lexi and Lindsay (laughs) and Matthew and Mike and Rachel and Riley and Sydney and Stacy and Terry and Tony and Valerie. Notice the disparity in age, the disparity in station in life. The olders to the middles to the youngers. And in there you have such a disparity of life experience and knowledge of the word and a track record in following the Lord as far as how far down that line they are in experience with walking with Jesus. He is not handicapped by our ability or inability because he is the one. He is the one who is at work and to will for his good pleasure. And Paul writes to the Philippians to encourage them, saying, there's one thing at least that I am confident of, and that is that he who began a good work in you will, or translations say perfect, but it means to complete. He will complete it until the day of Christ. So be encouraged. When you're... You've had it with, you know, I can't believe I did this again. I said that again. I, you know, how many times have I confessed this? I can't, why can't, why do I keep coming back to the same issues of my life concerning faith and walking in obedience and everything else? Just spend a little time with the disciples again. And hopefully be encouraged. Let's stand. Lord in heaven, you are the one. You are the one. You are the, the, the engine 
You're the machinery. You're the superintendent. You are the manager. You're the foreman. You are everything of this gospel machine made up of of faulty, failing, frail humans. And sometimes, Lord, maybe even oftentimes, in spite of our abilities, you get your work done. But you are always at work in our lives, always trying to refine us, always trying to take us up another notch, promising the whole time that you will never leave us nor forsake us. This walk of faith, Lord, is not easy. But you are there every step of the way. Lord, our spirits are willing, but our flesh is so stinking weak. In your name I pray. Amen.